0: If you join us for the first time here today, listen, uh, we're in week two of a series we're called You Asked For It, just to do kind of a quick recap how we got here. Uh, back in the spring after Easter, we had you guys uh, both in person and online fill out some forms, a little survey. Hey, what are the three questions or three topics you'd want to see taught at Radio Shores? We haven't taught about, talked about it yet, maybe we have, but we haven't gone deep enough. What do you want to see? And so we we, we gathered those together and uh, we came up with a, a three Messages in September that we were going to preach on, and so we started the first one last week. And they're not in any particular order because last week we started with the second most requested topic, and that was how do I forgive? You know, especially like how do I forgive you know after after having a traumatic experience that I've gone through. It's hard to forgive people. It's hard to hard to kind of let go. And so we 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 started with that one last week, and we walked you through some myths of forgiveness. We kind of broke some. Myths us apart, and then we walk you through how to forgive people, okay? So, uh, how, how do you forgive folks who've harmed you, and hurt you, and really uh, d- done a number on your life? Now, next week, we actually, are going to finish the, the I say the best for last. We have the number one submission, okay? Next week, we're going to actually tackle this question, um, what is God's design for sexuality? That was the most requested topic. We're going to talk about that next week. I would just say, parents, if you have kids, I know, I know you know, sometimes elementary kids come in and hang out. If you have kids, they may want to be in. And uh, rating kids for sure on that particular Sunday, unless you've had that talk with them, okay? Because we're gonna we're gonna go through a whole bunch of stuff. We're not gonna hold anything back next week. We're gonna talk about God's design for sex. Um, but hey, today. We're, we're, we're getting into the third most requested topic, and and, and it, it really, we phrased the question like this. What do Christians really believe? What do Christians really believe? And I just wanna share with you some of the questions that were submitted um, uh, to, to, uh, to the You Asked For It survey, okay? Real quick, and, and before I get there, the reason why this is an important question, uh, and, and I shared this last week too, a third of our church, it, it falls into kind of one of three camps, okay? And as a pastor, I love it and it excites me. A third of our church is either a new believer, so you're, you're new in your faith, okay? Um, you're a believer who, maybe you, you profess to be a Christian for 10, 20 years, but you've been drinking spiritual milk, and now you're kind of getting to the meat, and it's like it's, it, the light's gone off, and you're, you're growing, which is great. Or you're somebody who, like, you're not a believer yet. You're not you're not a follower of Jesus yet, but you got all kinds of questions about God, maybe you start coming to Radiant Church because you like the people, like the atmosphere. You might even sign up for groups this fall, too, right? And so, like, this, this this is where a third of our church falls into, and it really excites me as a pastor because, man, it's is fantastic. You want to see people grow in their faith. You want to see folks come to know Christ, and we welcome that. And so, some of the questions submitted, I'm sure uh, they came from guys in that camp uh, because of how they're, they're phrased. One of them was like this, can you teach on Christian theology? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question right there. We'd be here for like eight hours on a Sunday if I could do that one, right? Um, What besides Jesus do Christians actually believe in? (laughs) It's like, hey, I got the Jesus thing. You talk about I got all that, but there's got to be more, right? And there is. There is more to it than just Jesus that we believe and we have faith in, and we'll talk about that here today. Uh, The last one was phrased I'm going to share this morning. It was phrased just like this. Uh, I want a better understanding of the Christian faith better understanding of the Christian faith. I almost did not take this topic because it would have broken my rule of doing the top three, but I almost didn't take it because I thought, man, how in the world do you kind of fit everything into a sermon like this? So I'm going to just be honest right out the gate. This will be a longer message probably than normal today, okay? I'm just telling you from the very beginning. I'm going to try to get this in a time frame that's suitable, but we'll see. Uh, they really, you can't, right? You can't cram it in. <laughs> Uh, if you were in my small group, I, I had a small group in the spring called Theology Crash Course. I'm going to offer it again, uh, I think, next fall. If you were in that, this morning is going to sound familiar uh, to you because we're going to kind of go through some things we actually talked about already. But um, it's other than taking 10 weeks to go through some stuff, it's really hard to answer those questions and kind of get this, what do we really believe in such a succinct time frame? And then it kind of hit me. I think it's a Holy Spirit God thing. It's kind of hit me. There is a way I think we can do it. There is a way I think we can walk through. answer this question. Actually walk through what Christians believe. I'm going to do something very different today. I don't normally do this, but I'm. I, I used to. I was an adjunct professor for many years, initially being a campus uh, pastor for Southeastern University, and so I, I'm putting on the professor hat today. I'm Professor Andrew, bro. So I'm gonna. We're gonna do a lot of heavy teaching today. Uh, if you're one of those folks who's like, I like a priest. You. Well, I, that, that may come out because I can't help it, but it's going to be more teaching. Don't throw shade at me. It's one week. You'll be all right. We're going to do some heavy teaching here today, uh, this morning. Now, I'm not going to cover everything. So a couple of you guys will be out there thinking, well, pastor didn't mention this and he skipped over that. And why did I, I know, but it's a lot of stuff and I can't cram it all in. So I'm going to do my best to be as broad as possible to answer this question for folks. And I think the way we're going to do this is is we're gonna walk you through something called the Nicene Creed. I wanna walk you through the Nicene Creed. Now some of you guys have no clue what that is. The Nicene Creed, what is that, okay? If you grew up in a church, like you were Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran, maybe you went to a Presbyterian or Methodist church, you've probably recited the creed on numerous occasions, right? or you recited what's called the Apostles' Creed, which is kind of what the Nicene Creed serves the, as the foundation for, okay? But the Nicene Creed, it highlights the basic tenets of the Christian faith, okay? It, it, it's, it universally unites believers. Real quick, there are essentials to the Christian faith that every believer on the planet subscribes to. And there are what we call distinctives that not every believer holds. So there's debate the meant whatever, but they're not very important. But these essentials matter and they are important. And so the creed holds essentials to the faith that believers universally will, will, will unite on. And the way the creeds kind of came about, I think sometimes they get a bad rap. We're a Pentecostal charismatic church, and so you know sometimes this kind of stuff gets a bad rap from evangelicals and folks in our camp. But the reality is, the first Christians, first, second, third century Christians, they memorized and built creeds as a way of evangelism, alright? So what you would do is you'd walk around, you know, the Roman Empire at the time, you'd walk around, you'd talk to people, and uh, hey, what do you guys believe? Well, I believe in God the Father Almighty. They like, would kind of go through this creed, but they wouldn't just give you the creed, they would explain what they meant by that. So it served as this tool of evangelism, not like a read response thing in a service. And I think when you know that background in history, uh, it kind of changes your perspective a a little bit, on, on creeds and how important they are and what they pertain. So they, the Nicene Creed holds that basic tenets of the Christian faith. The tradition says this, that the creed was developed by the apostles shortly after Pentecost. We have no idea if that's true. I can't verify that. Alright? But what we can we can verify is that at the Council of Nicaea in 325, they codified it. They wrote it down. Okay? And, and the creed expresses the divinity and unity in what we call the Trinity, okay? Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You already might have questions. Don't worry. I'm going to get there. I'm going to answer that for you here in just a few minutes, okay? But it settles this important question of what do Christians universally believe and how do we worship God who is one, and yet simultaneously exists as three different persons. And it, it puts to paper the essentials of Christian faith and doctrine that unite every believer of every background on planet Earth. It is an incredibly powerful, powerful document, and we're gonna kind of walk through that here. But just for a little fun, okay? In case you're one of those guys who's like, Pastor, I'm, I'm here, but I'm not a history guy. I'm not, I'm not feeling it, just, just for fun. At this Council Nicaea, where the Creed was put in together, you should know that none other than St. Nicholas himself, okay? Old old Santa Claus. He was present at this castle, okay? And there's a story that goes there was a heated debate that St. Nicholas was involved in with a guy named Arius. We won't have time to get into all that today, but it was so heated that he cold-cocked him. So Santa knocked the guy out, alright? And they temporarily took away his priesthood. They frocked him for a little bit until he kind of went through a penance to kind of make up for, for you know, just knocking out a guy he didn't like at this castle, and then he delivered presents to all the good boys and girls, okay? That's kind of how that went, right? So, uh, church history can be a lot of fun. Uh, by the way, we're, we're, we're doing that in my small group this fall. If you're interested in this kind of thing, Wednesday, starting this Wednesday in the cafe at 630, uh, I'll be starting our group. Uh, we're going to work through some turning points in, in the history of the church. We're going to talk about some of the stuff that we're going to talk about early today. So the creed underwent some revisions, and the one I'm going to read from today is from the First Council of Constantinople, it's 381. This is what forms the the, the basis of the Apostles' Creed that's more popular. So it starts like this, okay? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things, visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before For all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten and not made, consubstantial with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost and of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And on the third day he rose again, according to the Scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father from there he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end and in the Holy Ghost the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father who with the Father and Son together is worshiped and glorified who spoke by the prophets and in one holy Catholic that's little c there Catholic and apostolic church we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come Amen what do Christians believe? We're going to start with the very beginning of this, okay? We believe in what? We believe in one God. We believe universally in one God. There is one God. So Deuteronomy 6.4 um, contains what's known as the Shema. The Shema is the basis of theology, just both for Christians and, and for Jews, okay? And, and it was really the basis for Jewish morning and evening prayers. You would recite this prayer uh, when, you, when you were praying uh, in, in those times of the day. And it's, it's very simple. It goes like this. Deuteronomy 6.4, O oh Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord's one. Okay? And yet we believe in one God who exists in three distinct persons. They say, wait a minute, how in the world can that be, Pastor? How, how can we do that? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, this is absolutely central to the Christian faith, okay? Trinity literally means triunity or three in one, okay? Um, the Trinity is, is not blatant in Scripture. There is no verse from Second Hezekiah 2-4 that says God is the Trinity. Like, there is nothing like that in Scripture. You see it Progressively develop throughout the Bible. I want to show you a couple examples of this. Okay, Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make human beings in our image to be like us." We're not talking about angelic beings here, because in other words, if that was the case, God would, would differentiate. He's clearly talking about Himself, like us. Okay, Genesis three twenty two. The Lord said, "Look, the human beings have become like us, both knowing uh, good and evil." Isaiah when he appears before the Lord and a vision. This is later. Amen. He's got a vision before the Lord, and he sees God in his throne, and the Lord says, who will go for us, okay? Uh, In the New Testament, the best picture you get out of this is the baptism of Jesus, Mark chapter 1, verse number 10. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you're my dearly loved son, and you bring me great joy. So you have in that picture God the Father acknowledging God the Son God, the Holy Spirit, descending upon the Son. They're all three together in that picture, okay? Now, for me, like I, I don't tend to like to use the phrase, hey, you, you, you just gotta have faith. Because I know this is kind of hard to explain. I think sometimes Christians, when faced with difficult questions, we use the I just believe or you gotta have faith card as kind of a way to get out of difficult questions without really trying to give an answer. I don't think you should force an answer, but I do think you should try your best to answer questions that people have okay but there are certain circumstances where you just have to say i have no clue how to explain this other than to tell you i just have faith right the trinity your mind will explode trying to think how can three persons exist as one god simultaneously it's tough i can't explain that to you i have faith I've seen the supernatural, I've seen God do incredible things, and and that has helped me get to a point where I'm like, you know what, I, I, I believe it. Now, as a youth pastor, I would tell my students many years ago, I would say, you know, here's the best way I can explain this to you. If you take an ice cube and go outside and put it on a table you will observe three distinct properties that water has yet it's still it's still water right it's a solid that that table begins to get wet because it's melting into a liquid and what you can't see is the vapor as that water evaporates into the atmosphere but 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 it's there and so but it's still water and so you have God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Father, three and one, still, still the same. God the Father should be referenced when we use the term God very often, most, most of the time, especially in connection with the Old Testament. He's our creator, he's involved in our lives, he's not hands-off. Now, a long time ago, we get to the Enlightenment era, okay? There was a big movement called deism. So deism is this idea that hey, God is like a clockmaker. That was the example they used to use. He's a clockmaker. He, he makes a clock, he winds it up, and he walks away. And he just is hands off forever. And the idea was that, you know, God made us, but God's not involved. God doesn't care. I reject that. It's not true. God has made you, and God desires you. He wants relationship with you. God is intimately involved in his creation. He's not hands off at all. He's very much involved. We don't have Jesus if God is hands off, right? We have Christ who died for our sins, so God is very much a part of our world and wanting to be a part of our lives, okay? So, he, he, he's involved. The creation that God made and tells everything. Notice the creed says he's the maker of things visible and invisible. What, is, what are we talking about here? That God is the maker of heaven and earth. Genesis uh, 1, 1 and 16 mentions that, that he's the maker and creator of heavens and the earth. What does that mean? Both the physical world and the spiritual, God is the creator of. God created angels. God created the spiritual realm. God created the stars, the planets. God made absolutely everything. He does not exist with the universe, he created the universe. I know a lot of, you know, if you're like me, you watch all kinds of sitcoms and stuff, and, you know, people love to say in in different parts of the shows, well, you know, the universe is just trying to tell me this. That's the way the universe is communicating. The universe doesn't exist in that form. It is a created being. It's a created state. The universe is is a conglomeration of galaxies and planets and everything else that God made. They're not the same. To say the universe and God existed together would be to say, I believe in a thing called dualism where they're both equals if you're a star wars fan um which I, I am i'm not i'm not on the ahsoka bandwagon i'm sorry i'm just not there but I, I love star wars and and you know you have the dark force you have the light side right and they're co-equals together and they, they kind of go back there, there is no co-equal with god god's the creator period okay he's the creator and the crazy thing about god he's always existed and again, I can't explain that and make your head explode. you know. But he's always existed. And since God is the creator, what does that mean? It means humanity has an inherent belief that something bigger than ourselves exists. We, we were in Romans this year and, and throughout part of the summer, and in Romans one says man is without excuse because God's made himself known. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says it this way. He, meaning God, has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's word from beginning to end we are born into this world with a nagging sense that something is greater than ourselves something is bigger something out there is greater than us when we discover it's God, we realize, okay, man, we are finite, God is infinite. And, and, and we can't see the full work of what God's doing from start to finish. That's one of the more frustrating things for type A's like me. <laughs> because you want to see, you want to know everything. And, and I, I, I don't, I can't. God knows things from start to finish. But this idea that we have create, we have a belief that eternity, that God, the supernatural exists as an inherent part of who we are as people, plays into something else. Uh, there, there are very few true atheists out there. I know a handful, maybe, of true atheists who believe, hey, we have a chemical reaction, things happened, when we die, that's it. Most people who would say they're atheists generally aren't. They're actually what we call agnostics. So what they mean by that is they have a, they believe, hey, I, there's something. Ha- something's out there. Maybe it's God, maybe it's the energy, but we don't know what it is, but something exists, and I'm open to that because it can't just be... It'd be hard to imagine it's just us. Well, that that's agnosticism, and most people who would subscribe to atheism actually are agnostics because they believe that. Not everybody, but a lot of folks, that's kind of where they fall under. Why? Because again, we have this innate knowledge inside of us that something greater exists. I'm not losing you, you're following me, right? All right. God's our creator, man. He's our father, and he has some unique attributes that only belong to him. Let me give you a few of them real quick. Only God can do these things. He's omnipotent, meaning God's all-powerful. Okay, Nothing nothing can take God on. God is it. He's omniscient, meaning God knows everything. He's all-knowing. He's omnipresent, meaning God is everywhere all the time. You you can't get away from God. You can't hide from God. You can't run from God. God knows it all. He sees it all. He's everywhere. He's he's omnipresent, right? Uh, God's eternal in the sense that He always has existed. There's no creation there. He is. He always will be. He's eternal. He's independent in a sense that God needs nobody, right? Like, we need God, um, but he don't need us. God doesn't need anybody. He's, he's completely and totally independent on his own. God is immutable. He doesn't change. You and I change. I mean, you know, as you get older, you change for sure. Things get bigger. <laughs> things get slower, right? God doesn't change. God is the same. He's immutable. Now, we do share some common attributes, like we're both spirit, God is spirit in your spirit. You know, when God creates Adam and fashions him out of dust, the Hebrew word is ruach. Right, That God breathed the breath of life. The ruach is the spirit of God. He places his spirit in Adam. Everybody from that point forward, hey, we have a spirit. We're spiritual beings, believe it or not. Hey, God, God loves unconditionally. We call it agape, right? We can too, not on our own, but through the power of the Holy Spirit we can love as God loves. Uh, hey, God dispenses grace. We can do the same thing. Um, God God is holy, and He commands us to be holy as well. Not perfect, but He commands you to be holy. We don't we don't get that this side of heaven. By the way, that happens in completion in eternity. So we believe in God. We also believe in Jesus Christ as God's son. Second part of the, of the creed. He's, he's the son of God. I think the best summation of Christ's mission is found in this verse right here. The most famous verse in scripture is John three sixteen. right? For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, right? The Creed states that Christ is the only begotten Son of God. King James Version, some earlier translations say the same thing, only begotten Son, okay? Is it pastor? Why does that matter? It's important to understand that Jesus is not a created being. He's not created. So one of the big pushes right now for for the Mormon church, they really want to be mainstream Christianity. They're pushing really hard for this. But a big separation is they have a belief that Christ was created, he was not. He always has been, right? He's God, he just always has been. He's begotten, okay? He's always existed. That topic was the centerpiece of a fierce debate at this Council of Nicaea, which is why this phrase was put into the creed. Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, and look at this word right here. We don't. We don't use this word ever in our language, but consubstantial. What does that mean? It means of the same essence or substance of the Father. He is the same. They are equals. They are the exact same, Jesus and God, okay? It's very important. He's not a created being, but he is divine and yet he was also human. Why is the humanity of Christ so important? Well, in fact, well, let's just start from the very beginning. Why is the Immaculate Conception of Jesus so important? Why does that matter? I think sometimes if you're a Protestant, you're like, I don't know if I wanna to touch that, you know, Catholic-y or whatever. No, it's important. The Immaculate Conception matters. This is really important stuff. Why? Galatians 4, Paul says this. When the right time came, the time that God decided on, he sent his son, born of a woman, born as a Jew, to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so he could adopt us as his very own sons. In doing so, what does God do? He unites humanity and the deity into one person who, who can make us right with himself. Who can make us right with God the Father. Now here's where I really would love to go into more detail, but for time I can't. So I'm going to skip over a few things here and kind of surface this. Which might leave you with more questions and answers, which is not my intent, but it's probably going to, going to happen for some of you. But Christ is the bridge between us and God. Okay, He's the bridge between us and God. Paul, I won't read it this morning, but in 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, Paul goes into a great, great little tidbit on Jesus and Adam, and how they're so similar, and how really he's what's called the second Adam, Right? And through Christ, we have life. And through Adam, we have sin. Now, to accomplish all of this, Christ has to be fully God and fully man. And so that only happens if you have that, that virgin birth, the immaculate conception. Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel talks to Mary and says, hey, the child will conceive, uh, will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. He'll be divine in, in nature. It's not a conception that could happen earthly. This is going to be divine. And yet, he's born of a woman, so there's a human nature to that, a human component to that. Okay? Uh, the absence of an earthly father makes this possible for Christ. He's born without sin, yet he's born as God and man. He doesn't stay that way. He has to live a life that's perfect. Perfectly in his obedience to the Father for some things truly really take place. But, but, but why is it so important? Well, the humanity of Christ meant this, that he could be a substitute for our sins. Hebrews two sixteen and 17 talks about that. That he could mediate between God and man, as 1 Timothy 2, 5 mentions. That he could advocate for us as our high priest. Hebrews two eighteen uh, makes that important point the Roman governor Pilate, he, he presides over the trial. He sentences Christ to die by crucifixion. Three days later, he rose, he rose again. He's seen by hundreds of people. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 6, Paul says there were more than 500 people at one time who witnessed this resurre- who witnessed the risen Jesus, okay? Without the resurrection of Christ, there, 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 there's nothing. He was a real, per- the historical Jesus existed, and he did die. Without the resurrection, though, you got nothing. There's nothing there. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Christ, okay? And yet, his death and resurrection does so much more than just forgive sins. We don't always think about that, but I want you to think about a couple of things real quick this morning. Think about this. Think about Christ's obedience for a moment. The obedience. Being forgiven of our sins restores what Adam and Eve kind of broke, right? Sin enters the world. He, he restores all of that. But it doesn't earn us the righteousness we need be part of God's kingdom. Okay? Jesus had to live a perfectly obedient life free from sin to earn the righteousness of God. We we can't do that. There's no way we could come close to that. But Christ does it for us. Let me take you to Philippians 3.9. Paul says this, I no longer count my own righteousness through being the law. Rather, I become righteous through the faith in Christ for God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. The suffering of Christ is just as important as the obedience of Christ, okay? And in the suffering, you're paying the penalty for sins. And we think of the suffering as he suffered on the cross, but the suffering was a lifetime. You ever thought about that? I I don't, I don't know your background this morning. Perhaps you're here and you struggle with like depression, you struggle with you struggle with some things that are kind of heavy in your life and you've carried it forever and you've tried all kinds of stuff and you're like man I still don't, I don't know Jesus lived a lifetime of suffering. We don't think about that, but I want to show you a lot of examples that that, that point to that. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He suffers through numerous temptations. Holy Spirit leads him to the desert and he's tempted by the devil. Isaiah 53, 3. The Messiah will be a man of sorrows, right? There's no way you get around this one. He's a man of sorrows. He's a man who's acquainted with grief, right? Suffering, a lifetime of suffering. Uh, Romans 3.25, Christ turns away the wrath of God. He. What, what happens? We talked about this over the summer. He turns away the wrath of God, he absorbs it himself. He turns it away from us and absorbs God's wrath himself, okay, on the cross. Matthew 27.46, for the first time ever, think about this, right? For the first time ever, because of all the sin that now he carries on the cross has been placed on him, the wrath of God is being absorbed by Jesus at this point. God's wrath is fully floated at him. What does Christ say? My God, my God, why have you left me? For the first and the only time, he felt what it was like to be outside of the presence of God. And so you know when we talk about how well Jesus, he gets it. It's not some cute sermon point. Ah, No, no, no. he he gets it. He gets it. He lived the life of highs and lows. He lived a life where if you felt like God doesn't hear me and God's not there and I don't, he felt it. He lived it. He went through it. He's been there, right? He's been there. He didn't stay dead. He rose again. And the Creed says this too. He says that at the end, at the end of the Creed, for he ascended into heaven, right? Well, why does that matter? Why didn't Jesus, when he rose again, why can't he just kind of vanish in the thin air and kind of come and go as he pleased? Why did he have to ascend somewhere? I think I think we overlook this. This is actually really important. There's a few takeaways here. Why does it matter that he ascends to heaven? Well, number one, it shows that heaven's real. It's a location. He didn't just vanish in the thin air, he goes somewhere. There is a destination. He's rising and he's going somewhere. There's an exact place where he's going. Heaven is where he was heading off to. Hebrews 1 3 says he has the authority in heaven over all creation and the universe, right? It that's a God's right hand. I think the second reason is is ascension. It foreshadows our own ascension. 1 Thessalonians 4 says what? That when Christ returns, believers will be caught up in the air to meet with him. We're going to ascend too when Christ returns. And it's a foreshadowing of what that's going to look like. I think 3, it shows that our final destination is not this world. For a believer, you're passing through. This world is not your home. This is this is where we're at now, but the final destination is the kingdom of God. If it was all that, if this is all there was to it, why would Christ ascend? He wouldn't. He'd stay right here. There's there's more that God has for us. Number four, last one here. Um, Christ is going to have a, a role to play in God's kingdom. He ascends because he's going to come back as judge. Now I'm going to hold off on this one until the end today, because I'm going to get to that at the end this, this morning, but in, in Acts 1.11 the angels say this, men of Galilee, looking at all the folks who are gathered around, why are you standing here looking up at the sky? So Christ has gone up into, into the clouds They say Jesus has gone away into heaven. Someday just as he went, he will return. How is he going to return? The Bible's pretty clear. He's going to come back around in the clouds through the clouds he'll return that way he's going to come back for us okay we believe in Christ so we believe that Christ will judge living in the dead and all humanity will come back to this here at the end we believe in one God we believe in Christ the son here's the third one we believe in the Holy Spirit you believe in the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, who what? Who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, okay? The Holy Spirit's role is to complete and sustain the work of God in the world. He makes known God's presence. He's not an it, he's not the force, he's not energy, I, he's not even a ghost. I don't like the term Holy Ghost, he's not a ghost. He is a spirit, right? The spirit of God who is actively at work in and is a part of the Trinity. Now... I want to share with you some four aspects real quick of the Holy Spirit's work and how he brings in evidence of God's presence because he does these things. One, he empowers Christians. He empowers us for acts of service. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about that. He empowers us to preach with boldness. Acts chapter 4, Peter, the guy who stuttered, the guy who cursed all the time, the guy who failed Jesus. Peter comes up and he preaches with boldness the glory of Jesus. Can I just tell you this? We're in a Pentecostal circle. I'll just tell you this right now. I do not care about well, I can speak in tongues and I can do this and I can do that. If you're not boldly proclaiming Jesus, you got nothing to offer. That's the most important aspect of the Spirit. He gives you boldness to preach the message of Jesus, to share the heart of the Father, to reach people for God. It's not about, look what I can do. It's about boldly proclaiming who Jesus is. That's the most important aspect. All the other things the Spirit gives you aid in that. It helps in that. You can't mix the two up, okay? He illuminates the word of God, so we can accurately discern who the Lord is and, and how, how we read scripture. You ever read the Bible, and all of a sudden things jump out at you? You know, like man, I didn't see that. I've read the Bible, and I didn't know that before. My my grandfather, man, he's read the Bible every every year through since I think 1963 or something like that. It's a long time. I'll never forget. There was there was a, there was an individual who sat down with him one day and said, Bob, that's that his name. He said, Bob how can you read the Bible through for 40-some-odd years and get anything new out of it? And he said, I get something new all the time. The Holy Spirit shows me things I didn't see before. And in different seasons of life that you're in, some things don't stand out, now they do. It's it's just, it's, it's incredible how the Spirit does that. He reveals the Word of God to the prophets in the Old Testament, to the apostles in the New Testament. He purifies Christians, Okay. Main job of the Holy Spirit, convict the world of sin. John 16, eight through 11, I won't have time to read it today, but he, 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 Jesus mentions how he will convict the world of its sin. That's his main job. He doesn't convict you and leave you alone. He draws you to Jesus. He draws you to him and you have a choice to make. So once that conviction happens and you're drawn to Christ, the ball's in your court. What do you do with that? Do you, do you respond to that conviction and say yes or do you hold off on it? And you're, you're playing a game of chicken If you hold off because you don't know when your time's up right you don't know what's going to happen but that ball is in your court at that point okay and then once you make a choice to follow Jesus he begins to transform you so you can become more like him what does that look like well Galatians 5 Paul teaches on the fruit of the spirit so the fruit of the spirit is this as I'm transformed by the Holy Spirit to be more like Christ the qualities become more evident in my life Enjoy. Patience, peace, gentleness, kindness, self control. These qualities begin to shine and work their way through all that I say and do. I'm becoming more like Jesus. This is the fruit that you look for in people that says, okay, yeah, I see a change there. You know, it, it, it's tough to love Jesus and be the grumpy old man for 50 years. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you're growing in your faith, you're, you're going to have that fruit really increase in your life. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means that change is evident, right? It's there. Number three, um, he guides Christians. Go back to Joshua 9, man. Israel was to consult with God on every decision they were supposed to make during the conquest of Canaan, and the one time they didn't do it, they lost the battle. You know, the Holy Spirit guides you. He leads you. Mark 1, he led Christ in the desert for testing. Acts 10, he gives Peter the words to say. Galatians 5, uh, 16-26, Paul goes even further. He contrasts a life that's led by the Spirit with a life that's that's led by the sinful nature. And the main point that Paul wants to drive home with that is that we should respond almost moment by moment to the desires of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Okay? That's a tough task for sure which by the way is why we never arrive this side of heaven. (laughs) You're not gonna make it. Be like Christ, let the Spirit change you. Just know that you'll never be perfect. You'll never be 100% like Christ until you get into eternity. You'll never arrive here, okay? Number four, this is an important one. He unites believers. 1 Corinthians 12. Paul's great picture of the body of Christ. It's a body, hands and feet and everything, right? And, and Paul talks about how we are all so different different roles, different gifts, different abilities, different cultures, and yet we're all functioning as one in the body of Christ. In fact, one of the sinful traps the Holy Spirit eliminates from our lives when we begin to let him change us is dissension. Why? Because there can be no no unity if there's division. So the Holy Spirit begins to erase and eliminate dissension and division in your life. You cannot hate your brother or sister. You cannot despise your brother and sister. You might be different. So what? but we're together on this. The Holy Spirit is at work today, just as he was in the book of Acts. We don't dispute that. We don't say, well, it's kind of done. Nope, nope, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole. Take my theology group next year. You'll f- but like, we, we, no, he still operates today. He still works today, the same as he did then. We believe that. For now, um, let's move to the final two uh, beliefs of the Nicene creed, okay? Uh, let's, let's kind of wrap this up a little bit. Final two beliefs. Christians share these, okay? Here's the first one of the last two. We believe in the church. The church. We believe in the church. The body of Christ. The Catholic church, little c. Little C is universal. Big C is a denomination. <laughs> all right? So we're not Big C Catholic. We're little C. We're a universal church. Ephesians 1 22 and 23. God has put all things under the authority of Christ, has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body, and it's made full and complete by Christ, who fills all things everywhere with himself. The church is both local, like here at Radiant Church, and yet it's also global. Okay, it, it, it looks different in different contexts. You see it in Scripture, Romans sixteen five. There are house churches, okay, and they're a church. First Thessalonians one one, an entire city is called a church. Acts chapter nine verse thirty one. There's an entire region that's referred to as a church. Can I tell you? There's no particular way to really do church. We have preferences, but there's no way to really do it. There's no one church. On this planet, denomination, network, whatever, they could say, we're the true church, we're the right church. No, there's there's a whole bunch of different ways to do this thing. I will tell you this right now. There are ways to do church we've not even thought of yet. Which sounds crazy, but but there are. There are ways to do church that we've not even come across yet, that Lord willing, you know, we'll, we'll come across down the road. Now, the church has one mission, and it's outlined in Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Christ says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us. I'm not a big fan of labels. I don't like labels. Oh, they're like a secret church. They're just trying to reach people and be cool. Oh, they're a discipleship based church where they just go really deep. Like I hate stuff like that. Our job is not to gravitate to one or the other. You know what our job is to do? I, tell this to, I try to tell this as much as I can to our guys here. Look, our job is this. Reach people for Jesus, help them grow in their faith, send them back out to reach more folks. That's all I care about. I don't care how it looks. Like We have preferences, yeah, okay, fine. But we don't. we're not married to it, okay? <laughs> we don't live by them. When, when you plan a church, a lot of guys will say, hey, you should target this demographic of people because you should have, I, I, and, and, you know, and I was like one of the lone guys in our group. I was like, I'm not really doing that. Why? Because I just want to reach people. I mean, old, young, I don't care. Middle age, <laughs> we just want to reach folks. I think some, one of the bad things in, in, in is, is, is as we get, I don't know how I want to say this, evolved, that's not a good word, but a, as we progress, Mamie, in short circles going forward, I think we kind of, we get in trouble sometimes. We start getting super specialized and narrow, and and I'm all about systems, but we get too systematic, right? And so we, we, we just get too scientific. Listen, just reach people. <laughs> just reach folks. Love people. Serve people. Help them grow in their faith. Who cares how you do it? Just, just do it. Just do it, and, and that's our job. Reach the lost, that's evangelism. Mentor people, that's discipleship. Release people, that's sending them out to win others for Christ, that's, that's what we do, all right? As Christians, we're to reach folks for Christ, help them grow in their faith, and then release them for the mission and purpose that God has for them. Now, there's, there's a lot of folks that have different preferences and different distinctives with their church. In fact, in this room right now, there's a myriad of backgrounds that you guys have coming in here. And you grew up with different things, I'm sure. But there are two specific ordinances, we'll call them, that every church, whether you're Catholic, whether you're Pentecostal, whether you're Methodist, there are two ordinances that every Christian adheres to and practices within the church. Very simply, there are this. A baptism, it's your first one right there, is baptism. One baptism for the remission of sins, the creed says, right? Right? Why is that? Is it water baptism that saves you? No. No, it's not water baptism. In fact, the the language there in the creed is not referring to a water baptism per se, although that's important, and that would be what we consider an ordinance is water baptism. But really, it's referring to salvation. There are three types of baptisms, okay, in Scripture. And I don't have time to get into all the details here, but I'll just brush on it real quick for you. There's three types. The first is baptism into the body of Christ. When you say yes to Christ, he forgives you of your sins, you are baptized into the body of Jesus. That is the remission of sins the creed's talking about here. You're in, you're immersed, okay? Number two is water baptism. That is a public profession of faith. When I am baptized in water, I'm not saved, I'm not a member of the church, I'm baptized in water because I'm saying, listen, I'm following in Christ's footsteps. He was baptized in water as a public profession of who he is. I'm the son of God, I'm gonna conduct my public ministry. From that point forward, his ministry was not private, it was now public. And so what are we doing? I am publicly professing my faith, I want everyone to know I'm a follower of Jesus. all in for Christ. In a lot of countries around the world, we're going to have a missions panel here in a couple of weeks, and and, and some of those guys have served in difficult places around the globe, and they would back you up on this. They'd say, look, if people are okay with you saying yes to Jesus, but once you get baptized, that's when it all gets crazy. Why? Because baptism is that public profession, again, of faith. The third baptism we believe in, because we're a Spirit-filled church, we believe in baptism of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit empowers you for the works of service, and He gives you gifts, and He gives you ability, that is a that is a distinctive, but we hold that here at Radiant Church. We are a Spirit-filled church. We, we believe in that. The second ordinance is communion. And the, and the Apostles' Creed says communion with the saints, but it's 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 an actual act, for sure, communion. But here is, it it also goes deeper than that. It's not just communion where I'm coming together and we're observing the the, the, the resurrection and death of Jesus. It's referring to the unity between Christians, past, present, and future, who are in the kingdom of God together. And I get chills thinking about this. Can you imagine you got guys like like Thomas, who was an apostle and he's following Jesus and he's talking with John Wycliffe, who translated the scriptures from Latin into English and his reward was they burned him at the stake for it. Can you imagine like that conversation, what that must be like? Or Jeremiah talking about Oh man, there were only a few. He wasn't the only prophet, because I can show you other prophets who were working around that same time, but nevertheless, he felt very much alone. And you imagine Jeremiah just saying, man, it was kind of rough, and he's talking to Charles Wesley who wrote so many of the hymns and songs that, that, that are part of you know, the church today. That's the communion of the saints. It's this gathering together, this church which spans backgrounds and demographics and also eras in time, right, together. Last thing I'll say about the church, we'll move on to the last point. I, I, I will say this, guys. The church, as imperfect as it is, and it is imperfect, And you will not find a perfect church. And if you're here today for the first time, you're looking for a church home, we invite you to be a part of Radiant Church. We'd love to have you. Radiant Church is for everybody, and we get that. And we'll help you find a church, and we mean that. That fits for you. We've done that for a lot of folks. Why? Because I believe that we're not all competing. We're together. We're on the same team. And there is no perfect church, but it is God's plan A, and you need one you got to be in a church. You need one. It's God's plan A. There is no plan B. It's the vehicle that God has chosen to use to minister to the world and bring the message and hope of Christ. It is, it is as Scripture says, it is the bride of Christ. God has a deep love and value for the church. So I want to encourage you, uh, don't talk bad about it. Don't get negative about it. Don't spin on it, all right? I get it. There's things that tick you off. I'm a pastor, okay? There's a lot that ticks me off. Don't do it. Accept it. It's imperfect, but it's God's plan A. And it's a privilege to be a part of it. Finally, we believe in this. We believe in the return of Christ, the return of Christ. All Christians everywhere believe that Christ will return. Now, they have different Opinions and viewpoints on the details, okay? I'm not going to get into that today. But they all agree that Christ will come back. In John chapter 14, he's, Jesus tells his followers he's going to go prepare a place for them. If he goes to prepare a place, he'll come back again to get them, okay? Acts 1, Christ ascends into heaven, and the angels tell the crowd, we mentioned it earlier, hey, he's going to come back the same way that he left. Hebrews 2, Christ is going to come back, this time not to deal with sin. He already did that. This time is to bring God's kingdom, to establish the kingdom of God. Now, to be fair, there's an awful lot we don't know about the return of Jesus. Okay, there's a lot we don't know about it. Um, the, the theological term for this is eschatology. You can go home and say, "I learned something new." Eschatology, right? You spell that one for me. Uh, eschatology is the study of end times, and and it is the least understood topic. I think it's arrogant to say, well, we know exactly what's going to happen. No, there's some things we do know, and there's an awful lot we don't know, but we would like to know, right? The eschatology is kind of in that boat. There's there's some things we do know. There's an awful lot we don't know. Here's what we do know. He's going to come back. We, We know that for sure. In fact, Revelation 20, he gives this picture, uh, John does, of Jesus coming back as our judge. All right, there's a picture that's called the Great White Throne Judgment. It's a little chunky here. The big passage I'm going to read. Just follow with me, though. Okay, Revelation 20, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it, and the earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. Again, there's this idea that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Right? You can't hide from God. I saw the dead, both great and small, sitting before before God's throne, the books were open, and including the book of life. And the dead was judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and the death and the grave gave up their dead, and all were judged according to their deeds or their works. The death and the grave were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is a second death. Anyone whose name was not recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Two different judgments taking place here. The first one is not explicitly mentioned in the passage, but it's implied and it's explicitly talked about elsewhere, but it's implied because we get that phrase, book of life, okay? And so that first one is, if your name is found in the book of life, you are in fact still guilty. You're not scot-free, just so you know that, right? Like, you're still guilty of sin if your name is there. You're not innocent. Christians, we're not innocent. Like, we, we sin, we're, we're not guilty. I've done wrong, I've committed sin, I've committed evil, I have no way to absolve myself of this. However, there is an option, it's the only option. If I place my faith and trust in Jesus, I'm still guilty. But if I do that, God will pardon me for my sin. And say, wait a minute, Pastor, pardon, what, what, what are we talking about here? A pardon, as in, hey, you committed a crime that you are guilty of. A president, governor, pardons you of that crime. They don't erase the guilt. You're still guilty. You're still a thief, murderer, whatever. You're still guilty of that. They pardon you, and you don't have to carry out the punishment anymore. I'm guilty, but I don't got to serve the time. I'm all free. Jesus took our punishment for us. We're guilty of our sin, but because he died on the cross for our sin, when I say yes to Christ, God looks at me and says, okay, yeah, you are guilty, but Christ has pardoned you. You're good, buddy. He paid the price for you. You're all right. And that's what God did for us. Now, the second judgment is this one. Those who have not accepted Christ as, as Lord and Savior, they're judged according to the other books, okay? Now, we have no clue what these books are. doesn't say. But what we do know is that God will use their works. If you can't fall back on Jesus, you've got nothing else to fall back on except how you live your life and your works, okay? The problem with that is your works cannot save you. You cannot be good enough. You'll never be good enough for God on your own, right? If your name's not in the book of life, you spend eternity apart from God's presence. That is your, that is your punishment, It's not the most convenient topic and no one wants to talk about it. I will tell you because I believe in telling you the truth. Hell exists. It's real. Now, I don't know what it's like. Scripture gives some clues about what hell's like. Some are literal. Some are more metaphorical. I think it's not, I think it's unimportant to get caught up in the details of what hell may or may not be like in that sense. And you should focus really on this right here. Spending eternity apart from God forever is hell enough. Forget about what it's like. I will never be in God's presence again. I think that serves as enough, Okay. Much more so to have knowledge of God and who he is and have some kind of understanding of what the Lord was all about, but never said yes to the Lord and to find out in eternity that, oh my goodness, they were right. How much more is that punishment for you to spend eternity outside of God's presence? See, that kind of stuff matters. Why does the final judgment matter so much? Well, first, it satisfies our desire for justice. We live in an unjust world. And it satisfies that need for justice. Two, it enables us to forgive people freely. Why? We talked about this last week, but Romans 12:19, God, He's the one who carries out the vengeance, right? Justice is mine, I'll repay, right? I can forgive freely because I'm not the one who's got to pay back for what you've done. I leave that in God's hands. I'll forgive you and God will take care of it. Three, provides a motive for Godly living, not as a means of forgiveness, but as reward. We don't talk about this very much, but 1 Corinthians 10 outlines believers. We are judged on our works, but not for salvation. We are judged on our works based on reward. What does your eternal reward look like? Okay, It's a whole different thing that we can talk about some other time. Number four, It provides a motive for evangelism and missions. I I don't want people to miss out on God. I don't want you to spend eternity apart from God's presence. I'm gonna share the hope of Christ with you. I'm I'm gonna talk to folks about you. I'm gonna do what I can to live my life in such a way that I do my best to let you see Jesus shine through me. We're gonna support folks who are overseas, reaching folks for Christ. The line in the creed speaks to this: speaks of the life to come, so the new heavens and the new earth. Eternity is more than heaven. Heaven's not even the end game for Christians. And I, and I think one of the things we, we sometimes make a mistake about in Western Christianity is we focus so much on heaven as being the end goal. The end goal is not heaven, it's the new heavens and new earth. It is, it is the kingdom of God here. Revelation 21 talks about this, okay? That um, there's new heavens and new earth that God is creating that will come into the picture. 2 Peter 3:13. we wait for new heavens and earth. In case you think it's just New Testament, let's go to the Old Testament. Isaiah 65, and 66-22, God will create new heavens and new earth. So both the Old and the New Testament, Jewish Bible, New Testament, right? Both of them talk about a new heavens and new earth that God will create as coming into, into being. Heaven is the place where God will make his presence fully known, and it's where our glorified bodies will dwell with creation in its rightful state. There's no more pain, there's no more tears, no earthly desires. Our desire is just for Christ. And I will tell you this, you're not going to sit on clouds, getting fat with little wings and playing the harp, you know what I'm saying? Like You're not going to do that in heaven, okay? No Cupid for you. I mean, if you were looking forward to that, I'm sorry to disappoint you, okay? <laughs> But there's some clues as to what's gonna happen in heaven and we see it in scripture. Genesis chapters one through three, what do we see about Adam and Eve? They had purpose. The Garden of Eden is kinda of your snippet into heaven, right? It's, it's perfect, it's shalom, the state of God's being. It's, it's everything you wanted and they have a job. They have a purpose that they're given by God. I think we're gonna have purpose in heaven. Ephesians 2.10 speaks of God creating us with a purpose to carry out his will and if you really study that verse, If you study Ephesians 2.10, you actually see this idea that God creates the purpose and he fashions your life around that purpose. He knows from the onset of what he wants to do, then he puts that inside. Your whole life is fashioned around the purpose and plan that God has for you. I think in heaven we're gonna have that. I, I, I really believe that. We're gonna worship the Lord, we have purpose. Throughout the word, we see the angels have purpose, right? They, they, there's messengers, there's worshipers, there's warriors. I think we're going to have purpose when we get to eternity. Guys, come on up and start playing for me, okay? I know I went long here today, and so thanks for hanging with me. It was We don't normally go. If you're here for the first time, I don't normally go this late, man, but we, we were trying to cover some stuff. There's a famous quote that's often used in theological circles, and um, I I, I don't know who said it. Nobody does, uh, but it it goes like this. It says this. In essentials, unity. In in non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity. When we get into God's kingdom, there will be Christians of every background present. I want you to think about this. I think sometimes we get so dogmatic in what we believe, and we we miss this point. So I want you to really focus and reflect on this for a second. You're going to see Catholics in heaven. You're going to see the Orthodox, Russian, Romanian, Greek, they'll they'll, they'll be in God's kingdom. Pentecostals will be in God's kingdom. They'll be the loudest ones. Baptists will be there. Because of course they will. Methodists will be in the kingdom of God one day. So are Presbyterians. They were always chosen to do that. I know I'm having a roll. I gotta stop. This is serious, isn't it? We're gonna be there. There's gonna be Americans in heaven. It's gonna be Kenyans. It's gonna be Chinese. Going to be Jews. Going to be Hispanics. The 1%'s gonna be there. Those wealthy elites. They'll be there, man. The middle class. The blue collar workers that every day wake up calluses on their hands, going to work hard little pay the homeless guy couldn't hold down a job had a rough life he'll be there democrats who voted for joe biden they're gonna be in heaven but so republicans who voted for donald trump and so will the guy voted for ralph nader they're all gonna be there okay it's going to be an amazing mix of people who on paper, and this is really important, and I want you to catch this. Heaven, the kingdom of God, will be an amazing mix of people who on paper should never be together, right? I mean, just think of the list I just mentioned. You can throw your own in there. They shouldn't be together at all, in the same room even, but they're going to be together, Why? Because the Holy Spirit unites the body of Christ. Unites us all as one. And my admonishment to you as a pastor today, do not allow non-essential differences, okay, to create adversaries with other citizens of God's kingdom. Don't do it. If your politics matters more than God's kingdom, you should, you should really ask God to change your perspective. If how you view people based on race and background affects your view of God's kingdom, you need some introspective work. If you're looking at other Christians, the other faith denominations out there, you're like, you know what? Like, I don't think Catholics have a place. I don't think Baptists have a place. You should ask the Holy Spirit to do some pretty pretty big transformation in your heart because you need it. We're all together in this thing, man. And we'll all be together in God's kingdom. United as one. Jesus' followers, I wasn't going to go there today, but I'll go there this morning. You know, his followers were a ragtag mix, right? You had fishermen, dirty, smelly guys, man. Salts and the and, and, and the skin in the air. This good, hard fisherman there with Matthew. Smooth-skinned, wealthy tax collector. You had Simon, who was a political zealot. A zealot. A revolutionary. He was one of those guys, man. He was part of the followers of Jesus. You had had such a great mix of people that were together. Should never have been together. And Christ united them all. And I'm telling you, God's kingdom will be the same way. So what do we believe as Christians? Well, we believe this. We believe in one God. We believe in his son. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe in the church. We believe in Christ who will return to usher in the kingdom of God for all of eternity. And that means anyone and everyone is invited to be part of God's kingdom forever. All it takes, all it takes, is one important step that every Christian around the world has taken to, and it's simply this: I'm making Jesus my Lord and my Savior from this day forward. Keep out your hands. Close your eyes, real quick you you here today and you say, Pastor, I have listened to this and I got to be honest, I wasn't sure and where I was at, what I believe, but man, I today I want to make that step and I want to say yes to Jesus. I'm not going to ask you to come up front. I'm not going to ask you to do anything like that. I'm just going to say a quick prayer. I want you to say it along with me. You don't have to repeat after me. You can just kind of say it in your own words. I'm gonna model it for you for what it sounds like. It's gonna go like this. Dear Jesus, I'm so sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the wrong that I've done. I know that I've, I've done things, God, that you're not proud of, and I'm here today to tell you that I, I need you. I need you to save me from my sins. I need you to be my savior today. I need you to forgive me. But I don't just want to ask you to be Savior. I, I want to make a change. And so from this day forward, I'm asking you to be Lord of my life. I, I will serve you starting today. I'm not going to call the shots. I'm not going to do my own thing. If I'm, I'm going to surrender my life to you. So Jesus, will you lead me? Will you guide me? Will you do with me what's best? Be my Savior and be my Lord. I will follow you the rest of my life. Stand with me on Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or would like to reach out to us, you can do so by emailing us at media at radiantchurchsc.com or visit one of our social accounts on Facebook, Instagram, like what you heard today subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes and give us a five-star rating on the podcast platform that you listen to we hope you have an amazing rest of your day